morning. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. Father, we present ourselves to you in desperate need of your word and of your spirit. And we ask that you would work powerfully by your spirit to give us your word. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it or turned on or whatever the appropriate activity is to go with me to the Gospel of John. If you're joining us today, if this is your first time, we are working through the Gospel of John. We're still in chapter one. We'll be there for a little bit. Take some time. The essential message of the book of John is that Jesus came to create a people through a new spiritual birth. The central message of the book of John is that Jesus came to create a people through a new spiritual birth. And last week we looked more closely at some of the statements in the prologue and we concluded that the work and the word of Jesus is better than the goal of the law. Today the passage we heard begins the narrative portion of the Gospel of John. Another way of saying it, it begins the story. It begins to sound like a story. Then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And so to a certain extent, we're going to begin to transition to a different kind of preaching and a different kind of listening, because this is a different kind of narrative. And so we're going to break this section into two weeks, and we're going to study it in two different ways. The first time, what we're looking at is John the Baptist. We're going to try and see what the gospel of John, or John the evangelist, intends to tell us by introducing us to Jesus and his ministry through the witness of John the Baptist. So the first week is a character study, and then next week we will look at some of the amazing statements that John makes about Jesus. So the main idea today, if you have a handout, or overhead, we'll see the main idea today is that we only know ourselves in light of knowing Jesus. We only know ourselves in light of knowing Jesus. See, we're really talking today about how we see ourselves and the world. Because that, more than anything else, conditions the kinds of questions that we ask and even what we mean by those questions and how we live our life as a response to those questions. What you see animated in this story is a series of questions. Certain individuals from the Pharisees come and they ask John, who is he? And John gives them an answer that is a little enigmatic. And from these questions, we're going to discover the questions that we have when we come to Jesus and how that changes the way we see Jesus and how it changes the way we see us. Because ultimately... The Pharisees saw themselves and their circumstances through a lens of their own importance. But John the Baptist saw and wants us to see ourselves and all things with a lens that's focused on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Shall we begin? So let's summarize this passage. What's going on in this passage? So I'm starting at verse 19, and we're looking all the way through verse 37. In the first few verses, verses 19 through 23, 
John humbly denies that he is the Messiah, that he is Elijah, or that he is the prophet. Instead, John gives an answer to those that are asking by saying that he is the voice, preparing hearts for God by calling for repentance and faith. So he says, no, no, and no, I'm something else entirely. In verses 24 through 27, mirrored and, and answered in verses 31 and 33, we see that John's baptism is an exhortation towards repentance. It's a sign. And it's pointing to the more effective, the actually effective, and saving work of Jesus. So we see there that John's baptism is a sign. It doesn't, as it were, do anything. Because it's pointing to the baptism that does do something. Jesus' baptism that comes by the Holy Spirit. Verses 29 through 34, then, we see John's witness. And if you didn't pick up on how important that word is to the gospel writer John, notice how many times he says, either in your translation, we either testify or gave witness to. The idea of witnessing is really important to the evangelist, and he wants us to hear the witness, the martyreo, that's where we get our word martyr from. A martyr is someone who gives witness to Jesus Christ. He wants you to hear the martyreo of John. He wants you to hear the martyr of John. John the Baptist is going to tell us who Jesus is. This is incredibly important for the evangelist and for us. John says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says he's the one and only Savior from sin and judgment. In verse 33, then, we can see where he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is where we get that functional distinction, that deep distinction between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. Jesus and his baptism are fundamentally different than John. And we're going to come back to that next week. And then lastly, in verses 35 through 37, we see the goal of John's ministry. Verses 35 through 37, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, again, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. You know, to a certain extent, the sermon could just end right there. Because that is the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that John the Baptist lived to say, that guy, that guy is the Messiah. And what you should do is stop following me and start following him. So at the most basic level, that's what this passage is saying. But because I like asking questions of the text, I've got a whole series of them. <laughs> So let's, let's dig in and let's look a little bit closer because these questions that are being raised, I find them incredibly interesting and I think they're going to give us some real good applications. So big point B, who are you? How and why we miss the point of God's word. Who are you? So in this question, 
what we're going to do is we're going to examine the nature of the Pharisees' questions. We're going to ask, why did they ask the questions that they asked, and what did they mean by the questions that they asked, and consequently, what did John mean by his answer? So first, we have to understand the context or the significance of the Pharisees' questions. You see, many Jews assumed only one coming of the Messiah. If you've been in the church all your life, you assume two comings of the Messiah. You just, you're like, yeah, he came once and he's coming again. Jews did not think that way. They looked towards one coming of the Messiah. And many of them thought that that coming was going to be in judgment, specifically to effect a national scale political deliverance. Did you hear that? national political deliverance. And that that deliverance would usher in an age of renewal. And they would look to lots of passages in the Old Testament to substantiate the idea that there would be this one coming, this great and terrible day of the Lord, when the Lord would exercise specific vengeful judgment on those that were outside the house of Israel that he would vindicate the faith of true Israel. He would establish Israel as a kingdom once again, just like he had with David, and that that kingdom would have no end. And the Messiah was going to sit on his glorious throne and rule from that kingdom. Because of that, many of those who thought this way didn't see any real need for personal repentance. Instead, they saw only a need for a zealous readiness to fight for the Messiah when he appeared. In essence, for many Jews, there were two things that were required of you. One, did you try and keep the law? Two, if and when the Messiah shows up, will you fight for him? If the answer to these two questions is yes, you're in the kingdom. You're just waiting. Now, for any of us who've been in, you know, the book of Daniel with Nathan, that's where I've been hanging out. Um, we know that there is a deep current in the Old Testament calling for an atmosphere of repentance. So it's kind of interesting that the Pharisees didn't seem to have this in mind when they came to John. The Pharisees understood Malachi 4 verse 5 as the background text for what they were asking John here. Malachi 4 verse 5 says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, the Pharisees thought that this meant that somebody like Elijah, maybe, maybe Elijah, but not necessarily, somebody like Elijah was going to announce God's wrath and mobilize God's people to fight for his kingdom. In essence, he was going to show up and say, All right, get your swords, get ready, this thing is happening. Next guy you see, follow him, and he's going to take over Jerusalem. We're going to reestablish Israel as a mighty nation. And so when the Pharisees ask John, are you Elijah? What they mean is, are you the Elijah of Malachi 4 verse 5 with the assumptions that we have about him? <laughs> Right? Because we all ask questions with assumptions. We all have a, have a set of things that we assume to be true about the question when we frame it, and that conditions how we hear the answer. The way I like to think about that is sometimes if you're using a camera, if the point of the picture is like the bouquet in the center of the table, 
and not the people around the table, then you'll focus on the bouquet and it'll blur out to a certain extent. Everything else will be in a different focus. When you look at it, you'll go, I'm supposed to pay attention to the flowers because they're the thing I can see most clearly. Sometimes you'll see this in movies where the shot will start blurry and then it'll suddenly zoom in and focus on one specific thing. You go, aha, that, that's the thing I'm supposed to pay attention to. But if you have it disordered, if you don't have the thing in focus that you want, you pay attention to the wrong thing. And that's what's going on here. The Pharisees had something else in focus. And as a consequence, they're kind of missing the whole point. Why did John reject their answers? Why did John say no? This is intriguing for a number of reasons. Some of you know that one of the most deeply intriguing reasons is that Jesus thinks that John is Elijah. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 11, he teaches that John is Elijah. So why does John say no? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons that he could have said it. I think the best one is that by reducing the identity of Elijah and the biblical theme of the day of the Lord to one text, Malachi 4, 5, the Pharisees had both compressed, or I should say, had both compressed and flattened the narrative of God's redemptive work in history. They both compressed it and they, I did that backwards again, they compressed it and they flattened it. There we go, hand motions. <laughs> By compressed, what do I mean? I mean that they had limited their scope of study so that in this case, the day of the Lord, which is an idea that if you, if you go home today and you go BibleGateway.com, quotes, the day of the Lord, quotes, you're going to get a whole bunch of information. It is an idea that is unfolded in progressively richer and richer detail throughout the Bible, but they compressed it into one geopolitical event. And Elijah is reduced to a mere announcement of that day of judgment. Now, while that rightly sees God's work in history moving towards a definite goal, which it is, it impoverishes both the breadth and the wealth of his purposes and his revelation concerning that end. So by compressed, I mean they narrowed their view. When they said the day of the Lord, they looked at one text, asked what it meant there, and ignored everything else. By flattened, I mean they blunted the edge of Scripture's power to convict by focusing on what they liked. We do this all the time, and it comes as a result of compressing the Bible's narrative, right? You, you look at something in just one space, you don't go anywhere else, because honestly, if you looked somewhere else, it might tell you something that you don't want to hear. A vindication is what they wanted. They wanted a vindication of their own perceived righteousness. They wanted a restoration and a renewal of their political power and wealth and influence. They wanted to discard what they didn't like. They wanted scripture to say, I know it's rough right now, but don't worry. Pretty soon, God's going to let everyone know how awesome you've been, and he's going to give you back the power that you once had. Now, it's not that God is not saying some of those things. He is. It's that they clipped out the bit where God said, and in order to enter into that kingdom, I need to change you radically from the inside out. 
They discarded the need for repentance. They discarded the need for the new heart. They discarded the idea and the promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah where God was going to change his people. So then, who does John see himself as? Well, it's interesting what he picks. I think that John understood himself not so much in terms of Malachi 4 verse 5, but about a chapter earlier in Malachi 3, 1 through 5. I'm going to read it to you. Behold, the Lord says, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, says the Lord of hosts. See several things there? One, who is the Lord a refiner over? The sons of Levi. That's a, meta, that's a, that's a way of talking about specifically the priesthood, but the children of Israel. So, remember, the Pharisees are sitting there going, when the day of the Lord comes, the Lord is going to judge everybody else. But what does he say? He says, no, no, when, in order for the day of the Lord to come, where I do judge everyone and everything, I first judge the house of Israel. And I need to change them. I need to refine them. I need to change their hearts so that, if you looked at the context, I've clipped out a bunch there because it's a long passage, so that they can make offerings in righteousness to me. Then I will come in final judgment. So it is repentance, not political revolution, that characterizes John's ministry. Thus, in John's mind, when the Pharisees ask him, are you Elijah? Thinking about Malachi 4.5, he says, no. This is not the Elijah that you're looking for. He says, in effect, if you're asking whether I'm the Elijah you're looking for, who you imagine will announce God's wrath on your enemies and vindicate your righteousness, then no, I'm not that Elijah. That might help us understand Jesus' teaching that John is the promised Elijah figure in Matthew 17, verse 12. I think that when Jesus identifies John as Elijah, he is correcting his disciples. He's correcting their end times assumptions. He's calling them to grow beyond what the Pharisees did, to see the day of the Lord as something bigger and more expansive than a single or purely uh, geopolitical event. And instead to see John's ministry and Jesus' ministry as the inauguration of the messianic age as the dawn of the day of the Lord. What's that? It's a period of wonderful divine activity that ultimately culminates in Jesus' triumphant return in judgment to establish his eternal kingdom. So yes, is there a single definite point of history towards which we are moving? Yes. Does it involve judgment? Yes. Will he set up a kingdom? Yes. But in order for that to come about, the dawning of that day must involve a radical 
personal transformation, a new creation of a new people of God through a spiritual birth. So in light of that, John's ministry was not to announce a specific date. He wasn't there being like, in you know, thus and so many days and thus and so many hours, D-Day is going to occur. No, that's, that's not what he's on about. He's there to call God's people to prepare through repentance for the beginning of a grand epic of divine activity that is set in motion by his Messiah. And so right there, by working hard through that question, we can get a few immediate applications. One, friends, John Piper is famous for saying this. I'm just stealing it from him. If you rake over scripture, you're just going to get leaves. If you dig, you will find treasure. Hard work in biblical study is worth your time. The first warning that we get here is against compressing or flattening God's revelation. It's a good opportunity when you don't understand something in Scripture to look elsewhere in Scripture. Look and let scripture interpret scripture. If you don't get what's being said here, it's probably talked about somewhere else. And it's made clear by looking across scripture, not always just at one proof text. Secondly, don't flatten God's revelation. The word of God is given to change us, to challenge us. If it just feels like some academic externalized thing, it's not having its right effect on you. Another warning is that we need to watch out that we don't read God's word looking for our own significance. The word of God was written for you, but it wasn't written about you. Just like marriage is for you, but it's not about you. Just like having parents is good for you, but it's not about you, just like every institution that God has created is for you, but it's not about you. It's about him. If you come to the Bible looking only to see your own significance, you're going to distort the Bible. It won't make sense. And if you come to the Bible self-assured and looking for the Bible to just tell you everything you already know about yourself, you're not going to see what the Bible has for you. So, understanding John's witness, we get two aspects of John's witness, right? We get who John isn't and who John is. So, who's John not? I've got a long sentence here for you. An agent sent to reassure us of our own righteousness within the scheme of God's imminent political and national deliverance. That's who he's not. He is not an agent sent to reassure us of how good we were inside of the scheme of God's plan to destroy our political enemies and establish us in wealth and power. That is not who John the Baptist is. That is not what he came to do. He is furthermore not our savior, verse 20. Nor does he offer us false assurances of God's favor, verse 21. Instead, he comes to call us to repentance and to faith. So then, who is he? If he's not Elijah, if he's not the prophet, if he's not the Messiah, who is he? Well, he's a witness. He's a voice. He's a messenger of the coming Messiah and principally of our need to repent. That brings us to the next major question. So the first question is, who are you? But when he doesn't answer it the way they want, then they ask, 
so why are you baptizing? Now you could see this as a genuine question, but you could also see this as a classic Pharisee question. Like, oh, you didn't give us what we wanted? Okay, now we're going to trap you. <laughs> I'm not sure which one it is, but the gives us the key to why true and saving faith lives in the fire of real repentance. It gives us the key to why true and saving faith lives in the fire of real repentance. You see, the Pharisees, just like they had some assumptions about the day of the Lord, they also had some assumptions about baptism. Some assumptions, perhaps even, that some of us have drunk in because the culture constantly wants to create an ungospel-centered form of religion, for lack of a better word. And so everything, no matter how orthodox we get it set up, the human heart just immediately sets to work turning it into some kind of thing that says we're okay. <laughs> so the Pharisees saw baptism as an outward sign of one's inward righteousness. It was an outward sign of saying, I'm one of those people who knows that I need to keep the law and is ready to fight for the Messiah, and therefore, when he comes, I'm in his kingdom. If, if you went and you baptized, got baptized, that's what it was saying. And that's, it's so close, but it's, but it's not. <laughs> and so when they ask why, if John is not Elijah, or he's not the prophet, or he's not the Christ, why is he baptizing? They're, they're basically saying, like, we've got this sorted out. Why are you asking us to go get baptized if you're not actually mobilizing us for battle? Some of them even took the view that baptism was literally a ritual purification process to get ready for war. Like, once I do this, then I'm ready to fight. <laughs> and they're like, but if you're not calling us to fight, then why do we need to? Because I'm fine, right? But John says in verse 31, for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So John says, whatever you might think the purpose of baptism is, the purpose of mine is so that you see Jesus. That's why. I'm doing this so that you see Jesus. Okay, well, how does that work? Well, the, what distinguishes John's ministry then was not water baptism. That's the point. <laughs> but water baptism, however significant it is, isn't the point of John's ministry. Instead, the point of John's ministry is repentance. If we look through the gospel accounts, we see this everywhere displayed. Luke 3, 1 through 20, includes the statement, John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 1, 4 says similar. Matthew 3, 1 through 12 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Acts 13, 24 describes, Before the arrival of Jesus, John preached baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. The emphasis throughout the New Testament on John's ministry is not the baptism. It's what the baptism was supposed to reveal. It was a sign, but it wasn't a sign of your internal qualifications to enter the kingdom. It was a sign of your lack thereof and your acknowledgement that you lacked it. It was the first step of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who know that they don't have what they need in order to enter 
the kingdom. John's ministry then consisted of preparing hearts to receive the word of God by alerting them to their sin and calling them to repent. It was not as though to be baptized by John saved you in a partial sense and then that got completed when you met Jesus. Like he gave you three units of salvation. Jesus had seven. You needed the one baptism in the water, but then you got the other baptism, and now you're a full-blooded Christian. You weren't before. You know. No. John was simply inviting people to symbolically shed an old way of thinking, which is really not all that old. The idea that we can find or provide righteousness for ourselves by obeying commandments. And instead, he called them to acknowledge that they were sinners who needed a savior. Do you have that assumption in your heart today? As the default assumption of the human heart is I can make it okay between me and God. I can do it. Either by something that I do or by changing the idea of who God is. One or the other, we're going to make this right. See, repentance is what happens when two truths are realized in the human heart. When on the one hand, we see the ugly depravity of our sin set in the context of the all-surpassing glory and goodness of God. Now, repentance requires both. Somebody who sees the ugliness of their sin but does not see a good God is merely contrite. But they don't repent. And somebody who only sees the goodness of God but doesn't see their own sin fails to recognize the gap that stands between you and a holy God. Repentance happens when you see both things. When you see, I am a great sinner, but God is a great Savior. That's what generates repentance. You see, sinners who see no need for deliverance from sin will never find the good news of Jesus good. It's not good. I don't need a savior. I'm fine. <laughs> it could be nice news. It could be comforting news. You might find it useful for you, but it's not going to be good news. And ultimately, what we're going to find out in John chapter 3 is that individuals who see the world that way, they're not ready and they can't enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, as they sat there looking like, we are totally ready. That very proposition is the thing that stood between them and being ready. Saying, I am okay with God. No, you're not, says John. See, repentance then is the fiery fruit of the gift of faith. When you start to see God is good and yourself is sinful, that's the work of faith. And the act is to repent. Repentance is the fiery fruit of the gift of faith, the right and necessary response to seeing our sin and longing for our Savior. It therefore is not a solitary event. It's not something that you did once on August 13th, 1985. It is not something that you did at one point and you don't need to anymore. I, I, it was a, wow, that was really hard. I'm glad I did it, but now I don't have to do that anymore. No, the life of the Christian is a life of constant repentance because Christians are constantly seeing, though I am a great sinner, yet Christ is a great savior. We live in a posture of faithful repentance. 
And nor is it, as the world imagines, a painful and shameful and unwanted experience. You see, a Christian who is truly repented knows how wonderful repentance is. It is not something that we look at and we say, oh, do I have to do that again? I I really don't want to do that. No. No, repentance brings us into the grace of God. Rather, we know that it is joyful, sweet relief. We know that it is the foretaste of an eternal union with God. We know that when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. You know that? When one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. Repentance is a wonderful and a sweet and a good thing. Oh, friend, at least one of the right responses to this chapter today is to take time to repent. That is at least one good response today. Make room in your heart for your Savior. Steal your faith by the fire of repentance. See more clearly the goodness and grace of God in Jesus. And so the question then is, how? How could the Pharisees have moved from this position to this position? How could they have seen Jesus? Big point D. John has two convictions that we see here. I am not worthy. This is the Son of God. How does Jesus appear to the believing heart? How does Jesus appear to the believing heart? We don't have time to dig into these too much this week, much to my sadness, but there are four convictions that animate John's witness and that reflect a believing heart. The first you see in verse 23. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John specifically uses the covenant name of God to refer to Jesus. So the believing heart genuinely believes that Jesus is not just a prophet, Jesus is not a nice guy, Jesus is God in flesh. The believing heart looks at Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. In verse 27, he says, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The second thing that a believing heart sees to be true about Jesus is that Jesus is more worthy. He is more worthy than anything else. A believing heart always looks at Jesus and says, you are more worthy than anything in comparison. So much so that the greatest prophet given among men said, I am not worthy to untie his sandal." That is how lofty a view John the Baptist had of Jesus Christ. The third thing is, he says in verse 30, he goes before me because he ranks before me. That means he's not just more worthy, he is actually superior. So this is not just an aesthetic sense that John has. He doesn't look at Jesus and be like, I like him more than anything else. No, he doesn't just like him more than anything else. Jesus is objectively greater and more authoritative than anything else. He is the Lord of the universe. He is, he ranks before all else. You could say Jesus is superior. So he's truly God. He's more worthy. He is superior. And in verse 30, he says, why is this? Because he was before me. It tells you that Jesus is preeminent. 
before anything else was, Jesus is. Long after the greatest human institutions will have fallen to the ground and rotted, Jesus will still be. And before they were ever thought of, Jesus is. And he is always. These convictions then form the foundation of true repentance and faith. You see, if you look at Jesus and he is truly God, if you look at Jesus and you recognize that he is more worthy, if you look at Jesus and you say your words are more authoritative and greater than any other words, if you look at Jesus and you say you of all things, you have always been and you will always be, that is the bedrock of repentance. You stand in contradistinction to that. The heart that sees Jesus as in God incarnate, worthier than any other pursuit, his word as his sovereign authority, and his unchanging nature as the anchor of everything that exists, such a heart, behold the Lamb of God. And you ask, what does it mean to behold the Lamb of God? That's the beginning of it. Behold the Lamb of God, big point E, how imperfect faith in a perfect Savior saves doubting sinners. And I know I'm going to stretch our time a little bit here, but this is a, I, I couldn't cut this out. <laughs> It sounds when you look at John so many times, especially in the Gospel of John, as though John had this crystal, perfect, unassailable faith. He didn't even meet Jesus. He says, I, I didn't know him personally, but that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Whoa, what faith? What faith? We must not mistake the clarity of John's confession for a kind of perfection in faith. Indeed, there's great encouragement hidden behind the scene here. Verse 29, when you read it in context of Luke chapter 7, verse 19, gives up a treasure. In Luke chapter 7, verse 19 and beyond, John, who is now languishing in prison, put there by Herod, he sends messengers to ask Jesus this question. He says, are you the Messiah, or should we expect another? Now, friends, I don't think this is evidence that the Bible is not true. I don't think this is evidence that the gospel here is not true. I think, if anything, it is all the more evidence that the Bible is accurate and true, and it rightly describes the real struggles of real saints that one man, when he is standing in the daytime, looking clear in the face, and he's, he's at least fed, and he's clothed, and he's surrounded by the community of saints, and he says, there's the Lamb of God, that that same man, if you take away his comfort, if you shove him in the darkest cell, if you cut him off from his family, if you don't let him gather with the saints, all of a sudden he begins to wonder, was Jesus the Christ? Was I wrong? Am I out of my mind? And some of us know exactly what that feels like. There's this phrase in theology we say, already and not yet. Already and not yet. Something that is here already, but in another way, it's not yet here. It's not yet completed. John's faith, I will argue, is imperfect, but not inauthentic. You see, faith is a work in progress. And John's nascent faith in Jesus may be simple. It may even be inaccurate in some ways. He may think, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says, yes, you are. But it is not false faith. You see, John genuinely, at the bottom of his heart, really does believe that Jesus is the Messiah because John genuinely believes that God's word is true. 
In verse 33, we see it. He says, I, I didn't know Jesus personally, but the one who sent me to baptize, he said, the dude I see the Holy Spirit come down and, and stay on, that's the Lamb of God. So that's the Lamb of God. That's all it took for John to testify to Jesus was God's word. Now, whether John fully knew or perfectly understood Jesus' role as a Savior is honestly really unlikely. Indeed, all the Gospels agree that while Jesus' disciples loved and followed him loyally, they fundamentally misunderstood his mission. You probably recognized a whole bunch of those assumptions that we talked about at the beginning about the Pharisees, and, huh, that sounds awfully like the disciples, right? And they stretch things out, but they stretch them out only as long as Jesus is alive. They're like, so when are you going to bring the kingdom? Because, like, that's what you're going to do, right? Like, when do we take Jerusalem? When do I get to sit on your right and left? When do you judge the Gentiles? Because like, I know you're going to do that. Like, those fundamental assumptions are true. But it didn't change the fact. That bad theology didn't make for bad faith. Surprisingly enough. Should we struggle for good theology? Absolutely. Does Jesus correct it? Yes. But there's a distinction. You can genuinely believe in Jesus while not completely, perfectly understanding him. You see, even Peter, who makes the good confession in John 6, 69, does not fully grasp what that confession entails. John may have spoken about Jesus from what he could piece together about, about him from God's revelation while still not perfectly grasping it. Or he may have confessed with great certainty something while he was free that when he was in prison, he struggled to feel the same confidence about. In short, I find here great encouragement for struggling sinners Sinners like me, sinners with imperfect but not inauthentic faith, that it is possible for the heart to truly behold Jesus in faith and still struggle with doubt without losing our place in the preserving grace of Almighty God. You see, the convictions that we talked about in our last point, those four convictions are forged progressively across a life of faithful perseverance. Over your life, you will grow to see Jesus progressively more as God in flesh. Progressively more as more worthy. Progressively more as superior. Progressively more as preeminent in all things. Because we are all of us being changed. And God gives to each of us the faith that we need in order to go where he calls. And that's why, big point F, I titled it, We Only Truly Know Ourselves in Light of Knowing Jesus. John's answer to the Pharisees' questions and his instructions to his disciples boil down to one command. Behold the Lamb of God. I chose to theme this sermon as I did because John's profound, godly humility and wonderful denials and glorious testimony about Jesus show me a wonderful truth. Only in beholding Christ, in knowing and following him, can we find our place in the drama of salvation history. So long as you read the Bible like the Pharisees, looking for your own significance and your own assurance, you're going to miss Jesus, and you will miss the joy. But if you look for Jesus, you'll find him. God calls us to read his word like we look in a mirror, James 1.23, not to confirm our self-satisfied assurance, but discover what we otherwise wouldn't have seen, that we are great sinners in need of a greater Savior. And so John the Baptist gives us the most essential message of the church. It is a precious gift, a great call that echoes down the halls of history. 
in the throats of every faithful servant of the risen Christ. And it will sound again and again and again until the end of all things when Christ comes on the great and terrible day of the Lord to remake the world and to save his people. Behold the Lamb of God. John's response to the Pharisees and his command to his disciples is the message of the church. We paraphrase it like so. Look, Jesus is the one you need. Follow him. All preaching, all evangelism, all obedience, everything we do ultimately is this. That's Jesus. You should follow him. Only God can change the heart. Only Jesus saves the lost. But as witnesses of God's grace, our task is not to convince. It is to testify. It is to witness with John the Baptist to say that Jesus alone can take away our sin and give us his righteousness because that is the good news. Amen? Let's pray. God, have mercy on the preaching of your word. And God, have mercy on us, great sinners. Overcome our sin by your grace and satisfy us in the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. For though we are great sinners, he is a still greater Savior. In his